Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. ElixirConf 2020 early bird tickets have gone on sale. The conference will be held September 3rd and 4th. There are three training classes that are currently being offered, and you can check that out at the link in the show notes. A library hit 1.0 this week. Uh, the library in question is Dictator. Dictator is an authorization library that uses Plug. The way that it works is that it implements uh, policies. You implement these policies. The policies are enforced uh, in the plugs and are implemented via CAN functions. These CAN functions then uh, idiomatically, they, they pattern match on the resources that are loaded and then, you know, uh, return false or true. And that's how the authorization is handled. Uh, pretty cool library. Check it out. And it hit 1.0 this week. That sounds like it was uh, inspired by the CanCan library back from Rails from years ago, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think a lot of uh, Rails developers probably be pretty familiar with that. And with the superpowers of Elixir and, you know, pattern matching, um, hopefully, I, you know, I, I don't actually use it in any personal projects. But um, with that pattern matching, it should be a little bit more straightforward, I think, to, to implement and see see the flow of uh, authorizations happening. Another item is Nerves won the IoT product of the year for Nerves Hub. Its IoT evolution world was the voting body. And they have a list of a number of different things, uh, projects and products that have won in different categories. So congratulations to them. And you can check out more on that in the show notes. Also in library land, we have a Serum 1.5 that just released. If you haven't heard of Serum, uh, that's okay. Serum is a static site generator that is written in Elixir. So the idea here, um, if you tuned in a, an episode or two ago, you may have heard us talk about Nimble Publisher. Nimble Publisher uh, is a library that takes your markdown posts and uh, compiles them um, into your Elixir application. So that way, these markdown posts aren't interpreted on the fly during a web request, right? So Nimble Publisher still relies on an Elixir web server to be running, though, to serve those web requests. Uh, Serum uh, takes a different approach. It's a little bit more... Um, a little bit more conventional static site generator, right? Where um, you have these set of tools that um, operate on your content at compile time and then output all these HTML, CSS, media um, files, right? And then those files can just go up to GitHub pages or Netfl Netlify or Surge, um, any of those kinds of providers. So Serum is just written in Elixir. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. So uh, it compiles all the Elixir stuff out and um, that's Serum. So go check it out. It hit 1.5 this week. Do you know something that we don't know and would like it to be included in our news segment? Tweet us at Thinking Elixir and let us know. That's it for the news. Today, we are joined by our special guest, Rob Madol, and he's coming to us. Uh, I'm super excited to have him on uh, because he had a recent Twitter announcement where he was talking about how Elixir is being used at Font Awesome. If you're a developer in the developer community, even like the broader you know, web development community, you've probably heard of Font Awesome. So I'm super excited to hear from Rob about how they're using Elixir at Font Awesome and just kind of learn a little bit more about what goes on behind the scenes there. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, Rob, if there's anything you'd like to introduce yourself, uh, just kind of like what's your role at Font Awesome and how big of a team? Just can you give us a little bit of background? What's it like there? Sure. Uh, so Font Awesome, in case people haven't really don't know much about the history of it, it was an open source project. It started in about 2012. 
And uh, for, for the longest time, it was just one guy. Um, Dave Gandy was the project manager and he's really worked on it for the, for the, for, for most of the time here. And uh, a few years back, we, we, um, kind of formed a business around it and we, uh, we kind of, we did a few things to try to get a business going, but we really didn't hit anything great until the Fun Awesome 5 Kickstarter. So it was open source, managed by one guy for a long time, up to version four. And then we had a, a Kickstarter that really kind of launched a, a business for us. And, um, I'm, I'm the lead software engineer. So I've been with the company now. I was the third one to kind of join up been there for for quite a while and today we're up to 11 people we've got six different developers and we've got three designers that's a lot more uh, developers than i suspected what kind of things are you developing on the back end we're actively kind of looking for designers right now we kind of always are looking for people to join the team as we grow because we have so much more to do than we have resources right now but the developer we our developer count is a little higher because we've through happenstance, we've kind of ran across people who were either transitioning from one place to another, and we had an opportunity to grab them before they went somewhere else. Font Awesome itself is is really just, it's an icon font. Now, we do have SVG, and we have some JavaScript integrations now with things like React and Vue. So, we have some components that we also work on, but primarily, it's just a collection of, of icons, right? So, you, you think... Why do you need so many developers? This is mostly a design thing, right? But, um, you know, we, we do have a business. So the, the main fawnawesome.com website has billing and subscription management and all those kind of things. And recently we've really tried to add some features to fawnawesome that make it more compelling. We want people to get a lot of value out of it. We want them to pay us and we want to keep this business growing. So we've, um, especially with Fun Awesome, our, our next version is Fun Awesome 6. And we just recently announced that we're, we're working on that. We have things like custom icons. So being able to take an icon that you've created and upload it to a site and be able to package that up into a Fun Awesome package, just like we've done with our other icons. So that's one of the ways where we're trying to add some value to Fun Awesome more than just what it already has and see where people can take it. Gotcha. That sounds pretty exciting. So me as a developer, I might have an icon that I need for my app that's specific to my app. I'm imagining that Font Awesome would have some sort of UI that I would upload this 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 image or this SVG. I guess it has to be vector-based? It does have to be vector-based. And yeah, you're exactly right. So the primary thing we see a lot of people doing is taking their company logo and mm-hmm. they want to make that part of their icon font because it's just so easy to manage. You don't have to worry about external static assets or where does this image come from. You don't have to manage your own CDN. You just upload your logo, your SVG icon, and then we do the serving for you. We do the packaging it into something that's really easy for you to use. That goes right on your website and boom, you're just, you can get be done with it. Get on to stuff that actually matters more than just putting icons on your site. And we just like to manage all that for you. So we have a UI and that's primarily a lot of our design effort right now with our three designers that we have go into building the UI and the UX for these tools that we're providing for other people. One thing I want to say is I do, I love Font Awesome, right? I was an early backer on the Kickstarter when they created that in for version five. 
And if you haven't seen the Kickstarter video, it's it's great. You should check it out. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's just it's entertaining. It's fun. I've also used Font Awesome on, in web applications, like custom ones that I'm writing. I've used it because it has a good integration into WordPress. Uh, I've used it because it worked on like a Flutter UI where I was able to download the assets and use the font locally in like a mobile app. So I really appreciate the the ways that I can incorporate these these icons and graphics into the different projects that I'm working on as a developer. And so I just wonder how much intentional thought has gone into saying, you know, we want you to be able to do this. Because I, like one of the things is I can download the SVGs, right? And so I could, if I had an SVG editor and, and the predilection, I could customize and do something to it. Like, and you just, you're like, well, you know, we're not going to try and lock it down. We're not going to say, no, you absolutely can't. So I just love to hear any more about the philosophy you guys have behind the scenes there. And you mentioned kind of being able to use Fun Awesome wherever you are, wherever you're currently at. And that is something that pretty recently we've started to adopt this mantra as we work on Fun Awesome. And Davis coined this term internally as font awesome everywhere. That's really a, a push that we're making, especially with version six. So the, the intentionality part of it, definitely it's been intentional. It's also come with some struggles because we are a fairly small team. There's only 11 of us and we have to balance the complexity that that represents because as you say, there's flutter, there's a very specific framework and a specific way that you have to use that. We don't have documentation right now that says this is how you do that. So part of us are like, you know, ah, we, we really want to have, want to have this fun, awesome everywhere. We want to provide a solution for everyone because we want that value to be expressed wherever someone is using it. We don't want to tell you, you have to use it just in React or just in Vue. Be creative, use it wherever you can, and we'll do everything that we can to provide a solution for you. So as we grow, especially with six, that is definitely a big push. You mentioned WordPress. And oddly enough, the WordPress integration that we have came from a bit of a side project that we started. One of the developers we have, his name is Mike. And we, we try to do quarterly meetups where all the team gets together because we're a remote team. The team gets together in one location and we don't do day-to-day work. We just focus on little side projects and things that bring us joy. One of those things was Mike recognized that there was a great opportunity in the WordPress community to offer uh, an integration that was easy to use. What he was seeing, and he did some research, is that putting Fun Awesome in WordPress before we had our official plugin, our official integration was actually really difficult. You could install a theme that included Fun Awesome 3. You would install something else that had Fun Awesome version 4. And they would all fight with each other. So one of the things that he did was he said, you know, WordPress is very open. There's lots of hooks in there. What if I can get in and clean all that stuff out for the, for the operator, the web, the WordPress operator, and they don't have to worry about it. So that, that's one of the things we, we really want to push to make things just as easy as possible to use because we recognize, look, we're all busy. Icons are not your primary thing, right? You want to get them in there, get them done and get it out of the way. So the more we can do that, the more value we show and everybody kind of wins. Awesome. Well, I would love to jump in and start talking about how Elixir has come into this mix as a technology choice. 
you mentioned that you are the lead uh, software developer. Uh, was that your effort to bring it in and advocate for the use of Elixir, or was that already something that was there? Just kind of because I know you'd also before the show uh, you'd mentioned some of the challenges that you had, like the previous version and some of the struggles. So I'd love to hear about that journey of of coming to Elixir. Sure. So when it was the company was first starting, we actually had a, another product that we started that was a little bit tangential to Font Awesome. And it was um, managing assets. We had an image upload and a typeface upload. There was this separate website and product that we had developed and we used Ruby on Rails and we were trying to get this thing going. We have lots of customers and they were paying us money, but it wasn't reaching that point where we could really sustain it as a business. So we kept kind of fighting with that. One of the things, one of our fights with that product was with the ability to scale it. We were on Heroku at the time. We were running uh, not the smallest instance, but one, you know, a couple up from that. And Ruby on Rails, the thing was just, it was difficult. We were having lots of problems kind of keeping the thing running with the response time being fast enough that we were comfortable with. So we had this idea of building a separate CDN for, for version four of Font Awesome. And one of the things, Travis and I, Travis is the CTO of the company, we got to talking and it was just almost almost on a whim that he and I said, you know what, we know we're having trouble with Rails. We've heard about Elixir, we've heard about Phoenix. Let's give this a try on a small project. Let's test it out and see what happens. So the version 4 CDN, which it's not actually, uh, we don't recommend it anymore, but it's still out there running because you make a CDN, you can never ever Get rid of it. It's always going to be out there forever. So cdn.fontawesome.com actually still exists. That's the first Elixir and Phoenix code base that we wrote. It's horrific. I wouldn't subject it to anybody. When we have new people come on board, we're like, like, like this thing exists, but you probably don't want to look at it. It's quite embarrassing. <laughs> but the thing is that it worked. We were able to get something out really quickly that we had integration with a... a a CDN provider. So it's not actually the CDN itself. It's just the tool that manages the CDN. So we're still, we're pushing files to S3. S3 is the origin. And then we have another CDN that actually serves the, the assets. But that tool itself that manages that was written in Elixir and Phoenix. What we found was the scale of that. It performed, it outperformed our wildest expectations. We had a T2 medium instance, which it's not the smallest on AWS, but it's still pretty tiny. And we scaled that product up to, I think we were over a million users who had something being managed by this product, over a million users pretty quickly. And we never upped the instant size. We stayed on a T2 medium the whole, the whole time. So from a performance perspective, we were just super impressed. And one of the challenges with us is since we are an open source project, we are very popular. Whenever we launch something like that, it does get a lot of attention and it scales fairly quickly. So being able to keep up with that has been a challenge and we, we just couldn't be happier with that. So this was your first Phoenix project. You, guys, you, you, you say the code is horrific. We'll never know. It's probably fine. But what, <laughs> what would you say? Like, what, what was your Rails experience like? Were you guys like Rails experts and you were trying to, you were like tweaking every little knob and you just couldn't get it to work. And then you rolled into Phoenix and you didn't know what you're doing and just 
stumbled upon a million requests, not not really knowing what to do. We the the Ruby on Rails experience. We were trying really hard to get a product going that could sustain a business. So in that environment, we didn't really have time to go in and tweak every single knob in Ruby on Rails. I, I know that Ruby can scale. There are many companies that have that have proven that over time. That's not the issue. The issue is we didn't have time to figure out what we needed to do to make it work well. We're adding features. We're making modifications just to try to build the business. What we found with Elixir and Phoenix is that out of the gate, if you do what it says in the documentation and you follow the, the precepts, there's really not much that you need to do to make that work. So whatever we were doing could be on Rails as far as over time, we would see these requests take longer and longer and longer. We would kind of peek at the database uh, introspection and be like, why are there 314 calls being made to the database to get this one user thing? I don't understand why this is happening. I'm not going to trace it down. Like we have to, this is going to take forever. So Ecto is the other kind of magic piece of the puzzle, right? It's full, full disclosure. I hate relational databases. I get made fun of all the time at work for this, but I hate relational databases. I think that all this should be a solved problem already. Like data here, front end here. Somebody solved this, so I don't have to mess with it anymore. So, <laughs> with Ecto, what we found so great about Ecto was it's just so difficult to get yourself in a spot where you're being dumb. It's so well organized. The documentation is so great that we were able to use that really effectively. Our database performance has always been great. And in, in turn, that makes the rest of the framework, the rest of the site or, or tool we're working on, it makes that also great and fast because a lot of times databases can be that that thing, that bottleneck that starts to really kill you. Very cool. So I'd also love to just kind of dig in a little bit behind the technical side of what is happening when a request is being made. And I assume this is, you're, we're specifically talking about the CDN part, right? So as a subscriber, say I'm, I'm paying for a pro-level subscription and in my request, so I'm, I'm pulling the data from your CDN and in the request, the headers are sent along, probably include something about my uh, license number or something like that. And for every request, then you're having to look it up and validate that it's active or kind of what's going on there. It's a product that, that you, you mentioned. We call it kits. It's something, it's a fairly new thing for Fun Awesome. And exactly like, as, as you said, it's a, basically it's a CDN, but a bit of a CDN with extra extra things on top of it. I mentioned that we are going to have custom upload where you can put your own icons in there. That's going to be through our kits product. Whenever a request comes in, one of the things that we do is you get what we call an embed code. And it's just a little chunk of kind of random characters that identify a particular kit. That kit comes in and when it hits the server, it's directly coming into contact with Phoenix first. And Phoenix is, it knows, it can take that embed code from the URL path and it's going to look it up first in a local cache that it has because we, we have a memory cache and that memory cache is using ETS, by the way. Awesome. So it looks it up there. If it's not there, it's going to go to the Red, the Redis database server. That Redis server is a replica of a master that we have. And because it's a CDN, the thing is deployed around the entire world. Mm -hmm. 
So we have one master Redis, lots of Redis replicas around the world, as physically close and in the same internal network as the Phoenix server. So that Redis, that Redis lookup happens, it comes back from that lookup, it's got all the kind of database data that it needs, and it's able to generate a little chunk of JavaScript that then loads the rest of the, the things for your website. So all that happens through Phoenix, and it happens super fast. We have a monitoring system called Prometheus. It's our metrics, da- our metrics dashboard, and we, we keep track. We have a little heat map, and that heat map keeps track of how many requests were served in one millisecond versus 10 millisecond. And what we've seen is that process that I just described can be done and completed in microseconds. Just so one of those things you first hit when you start to work with Phoenix is the fact that things are not measured in in, uh, milliseconds necessarily. They're actually measured in microseconds because things can be so fast. And we found that that whole process can happen between about 100 and 250 microseconds. Again, just always super impressed with the speed of Phoenix and how how well it performs. So I'm including a, a link to that Twitter announcement where you uh, mentioned that and shared that little heat map graphic. So for you, dear listener, you can check the show notes and see a picture of what he's talking about. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, do you have any kind of metrics or do you track um, what frameworks or languages you see most use Font Awesome? We don't have an official tracking thing where we go by the numbers or anything. What we typically do is at Fun Awesome, if you have a, a subscription to our service, so if you if you pay money, you actually get access to human support. We have a support team and you can send them a message about anything, ask them questions, support questions, anything you have. And they keep track loosely of the stuff that we're seeing. So if somebody, you know, maybe a new framework comes out or we have, you know, React Native kits, something comes up, they'll get requests for that a lot in the support inbox. And then we'll know that, okay, we're getting a lot of interest there. Do we have something that works already? So you can use Fun Awesome with React Native and we'll do a bit of investigation. And if the answer is no, and there's enough interest in it, then we'll go ahead and spend the time to make make something that works and makes that experience nice. So Rob, one of the things you'd mentioned was that some of the challenges that you have encountered because you're using Elixir, you know, Elixir is still somewhat niche, right? It's not like on the Tyobi top 10 kind of, you know, everyone is using it kind of tool. So it's it's still up and coming and growing. So I was just curious as to what uh, are some of the challenges you've encountered because you're using Elixir? There's a couple of different things that we could talk about there. The first thing was the way that Elixir is deployed and the way you deploy Phoenix has been a little tricky. We did start with it when it was fairly young, there weren't a lot of existing solutions. We had some of our first experiments with Elixir and Phoenix before Distillery existed, before Mixed Release existed. So actually figuring out how to deploy that, make sure that it was secure, make sure that it was performant, that was a little tricky. But once we got past that, the next tricky thing is just getting developers on board now that we're up to about six people, we've got varying degrees of expertise. We have some people that have been using writing software for 20 plus years. We have somebody who's new, who's just starting this career. So there's varying degrees of learning challenges we've had with it. One of the main 
issues is with the syntax. <laughs> and people mention that, and it's totally valid, right? The syntax can be strange. You've got atoms, you've got pattern matching, you've got structs. There's lots of things. And you, you go deeper down, you have OTP when you start talking about gin servers and callbacks. So it, the syntax can be a little heavy. But then I always, I always point them to Erlang and say, well, take a look at Erlang <laughs> and see what you think about that. Because Elixir, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot better than Erlang in my opinion, as far as understanding it when you've come from something like Python or Ruby or even Java. Just being an approachable language, right? Approachable. That's a, that's a good way to describe it. So even though it's a challenge, it's still, it's not so much of a challenge that we haven't been able to overcome it. The other shift is with object-oriented versus functional. That's been a challenge for, I mentioned Travis before, he's the, the CTO. For him, he's used object-oriented for most of his career. And that shift to functional was very, it, it took him a while. Um, and then I explained it to him because we you know, were chatting back and forth. I had already kind of made the switch. I've, I've done functional stuff before and I, and I loved it. And I said, once you get your mind wrapped around it, you, you won't want to go back. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll pull and you'll do something object oriented a few months from now and it will, it will feel strange. And, and that happened, you know, he was able to make the shift, but it does take a little bit of time and patience is something that if, if a team is considering adopting Elixir and Phoenix because they hear such great things about it, my recommendation is just to be patient with your team because there's going to be some hiccups and a learning curve that's probably a little more than, say, going from Python to Ruby or, I don't know, whatever somebody wanted to try. But it's, uh, it's, worth, it's worth the effort because the benefits. And, and at this point, our, our entire team is acclimated and we're all in the Elixir and Phoenix camp. And everybody says, you know, wouldn't go back. They're really liking it. That's cool. Because I know when I first came to Elixir, uh, you know, I'd heard of Erlang and I'd kind of looked at it and it's like, ah, I don't even know how to mentally process this. I hadn't looked at, you know, other prologue or anything like that where kind of where it derives from. Uh, so it's just completely foreign. I, I didn't even know how to like approach it. So I was like, ah, whatever, maybe it's cool. I won't touch it. And then later when Elixir came on, uh, and I, I started exploring with that, it was that difficulty of being able to look at code and even understand what was happening because of things like pattern matching. It's like, this is not a function that I'm accustomed to seeing. This looks like it's declaring variables in a function declaration, like header. It's like, I don't, I don't even understand what this, what's going on. So I, I totally get that, right? It is a, a fun challenge because once I kind of clicked and got pattern matching, I was like, this is my favorite thing. I, w- I want it in every language I have to touch. Uh, and I can't have it in other languages, you know, to the same degree and, and completeness. So I'm I'm super thrilled with that. But yeah, so thanks for sharing those experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone talks about pattern matching as being one of their favorite features. And you you mentioned you want it in every language. The other thing is that we write, of course, we write a lot of JavaScript. We have our site is written with Vue.js as the front end framework. And there is a pattern matching proposal for JavaScript that I have been watching for <laughs> feels like years now, waiting for that thing to land because I I want that everywhere too. I want to be able to pattern match in JavaScript. 
I, I remember being really jealous of destructuring in, in JavaScript back when I was programming in, in Ruby. I, was, I, I really want to destructure out of this, but I, I can't. So I was jealous of JavaScript. Then I went to Elixir and I was like, oh, I've got, I've got destructuring plus some. So this, this feels pretty good. A little while ago, you mentioned that it was a little bit difficult to hire for Elixir developers. And I remember um, back when I was uh, consulting, that argument would come up a lot, you know, and even more so back then, uh, several years ago. And the the thing that I told them to, you know, assuage their fears was, was that for, for every one Elixir developer you found that had experience, there's probably 10 more out there that don't have experience, but want that experience. You know, and they're working across different languages right now, like Python, Ruby, or JavaScript. And they're just, they're interested in Elixir because they hear stories like yours. We're like, wow, you know, like microsecond responses, that's pretty nice. I want to try that out. So, so I think that's okay. I don't, I, I wouldn't say that it's been a problem in my experience. Yours is obviously different, but in my experience, I, I haven't actually had a problem finding, finding Elixir developers. I've had a problem finding experienced Elixir developers, but not getting somebody that wanted the job, you know, like that, that was never a problem to, to me, but maybe I'm, I'm in a, a side universe here. Um, but a question for you is what, since you did find some Elixir developers and you have some new ones and some old, old, old fellas there too, what's your advice for finding Elixir developers or for fresh Elixir developers? Again, we're at six developers now and we actually haven't no one who has come onto our team has had any experience at all with Elixir. Travis and I both, we st- uh, he and I are the oldest, oldest guards on duty, so to speak. We both have learned Elixir on the job. And then we took that learning and spread it to the rest of the team as they've come on. So everyone who has joined our team has either never heard of Elixir or, like you say, they've been interested in it but not had a chance to. So I'm pro- I may not be the best person to ask here because my opinion of finding Elixir devs, it's a bit of a wrong question to ask. I think the important part is, do you have a team who's willing to learn and, and, and wants to experience the success that learning together and growing your technical code base and your technical chops that that can bring? If the answer is yes, then Elixir is approachable. It's, it's learnable. There's lots of training material out there. And I, I would say your best bet is to commit to Elixir and then build your team. Just give them a little bit of time to, to build their skills in it. And don't worry so much about finding devs. Worry about finding devs who are willing to learn. That's great advice. If you wouldn't mind, maybe you could speak to the process of onboarding your team to Elixir, what kind of resources you guys use and and how that process kind of unfolded in your team. Onboarding has been, has actually been a lot of fun for me personally. I would say the key thing that has helped for us, whether you're a senior person who's coming to Elixir from Python or some other language or if you're brand new and you're starting your career and you're learning all sorts of things, plus putting Elixir on top of that, both of those situations, pair programming has been probably one of the best ways that we've been able to bring people up to speed and then very extensive code reviews. And by extensive, I mean, I will devote a couple of hours 
to do a code review on a, on a pull request. Maybe it's two, 1,000, 2,000 kind of lines of changes. Dig in really, really deep and, and make recommendations and talk through strategy. Say, hey, have you thought about using enum map here instead of doing what you're doing? Because then you can use the pipe operator and take the output and pipe that into something else that you're doing. That'll shrink your code base up or things like, I've noticed you've got a lot of functions here, but the way you've organized it, if one of those things fails, you're going to get a match error on the next line. So have you thought about using a width? For me, I've, I've learned a lot as I've, as I've done those code reviews and it's been really beneficial. So between pair programming and code reviews, that's really been the primary way we've upped our skill level as a, as a team. And of course, they've also done some, and I, I asked uh, the developers before, before I got on with you guys, some of the stuff that they've used. The Pragmatic Elixir, Pragmatic Studio Elixir course was recommended. And then there's an exercise site called Exorcism.io that they also said was really great. Both of those things were recommended. Lastly, one of the other things that we do is we call them lunch and learns. But we'll usually schedule them for about 1 o'clock in the afternoon uh, central time. And one of us will go through and take either a hard problem that we spend some time to kind of figure out how to solve. Or maybe it's a new feature that we're just really happy with. Lately for me, it's been anytime I've used OTP to do anything, I've gotten really excited and wanted to share that. So we'll get on and do a little miniature presentation. And that also helps to share knowledge and get everybody excited and keep the energy up for, for the team. I think that's a great tip though, because it's like, as you're learning it, you've dug in enough to like kind of get what you needed and solve your problem. And you're still excited about it. So sharing when you have that level of excitement makes it more infectious. It makes it more it's like, wow, this it's easier for people to become engaged. Right. So I think that's a, I, I think it's a great way to do that with like lunch and learns where you're not like putting it off, like to a quarterly kind of thing or, or like a, a once a month thing, you know, it's like maybe weekly. It's like, Hey, I have something cool to share. And while it's still fresh, while it's still exciting, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. And we've also found that because I, I kind of dogged on Erlang a little bit earlier, as far as it being approachable, that was a good word that you used. And as we get more mature with Elixir, what we're finding is, you know, it's not so different from Erlang. The syntax is, but really the core underpinnings are very similar. And we started to develop interest in ETS, in amnesia, in distributed nodes and distributed Erlang. So we're able to get into some of these topics that maybe we wouldn't normally, but are still just, they're a wealth of capability just built into this thing that we're already using that we, we, we like to approach and like to experiment with. Yeah, just to be fair, like Erlang's a Erlang's a great language, and yeah, if you're used to Ruby or Python, um, you, you're going to be uh, you're going to see the syntax and be it's going to look very foreign to you. So you're you're going to be you know walking away from it, thinking it, it it looks terrible. But to a lot of other folks, you know, like Erlang's still a very nice language, reads really well. It, you know, it ends it ends its expressions with periods. You know, it's it's trying to 
it, it, it is a, a beautiful language, but it is uh, different from what a lot of other folks are used to, uh, used to being like, I don't know, like I grew up on interpretive languages like Ruby and, and Python. So that's what I was used to. I had a decade of, you know, of looking at syntax that looked like that. And then I look at something like closure and like, oh my gosh, it's totally different. I've never experienced anything like that. All these parentheses, I can't deal with it. <laughs> um, and Erlang was, you know, not, not, not that, uh, not as, as parentheses written as closure, but it was of the similar style. So yeah, it's, it's a good language. It's very beautiful. I, I, I think I, uh, you know, a lot of folks would actually really enjoy it. Like you're, you're seeing there, it's very smart, very mature. Um, and it might just take a little longer to get used to the difference in text style. I will add to that, uh, just on speaking of Erlang, how once I'd come and gotten over the mental hurdle of learning about tuples and the pattern of returning like an okay error tuple for a lot of results and learning about how I have, you know, public functions and private functions and and then just like some of those patterns. And then looking at Erlang code, it was easier to understand. So I'm much more capable of reading Erlang code and understanding what's going on. I haven't made that jump to actually authoring and writing it myself. But uh, I think it's it becomes much more approachable once you understand Elixir because there's less of a jump. It does. One of the first hurdles that I remember about that as I started to read Erlang code was just the shift of atoms in Elixir start with a colon and in Erlang, they're just atoms. It's kind of the, the native language. So most things are atoms in Erlang and it takes a while to make that shift to be able to map. Oh, okay. I'm looking at an atom. So if I wrote this in Elixir, it would start with a colon be lowercase and Erlang, it looks like this. So yeah, you, you really do. You start to appreciate Erlang the more you work with it. And there's, there's a bit of a gateway. I think typically the first thing you reach for is probably ETS. So that first colon ETS dot something you do. Okay. You're, you're going, you're, you're probably going to be hooked. This is your gateway into it. And uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a ride. Yeah. I do, I do love and I really appreciate how we can directly call into Erlang functions. Uh, from Elixir, just like, because, you know, the mo it's a module and it's just, it's an atom. So it's just colon Erlang dot function or colon ETS dot function. So I think it's really cool. So one of the other things I'd love to talk about is you'd mentioned OTP and kind of as you started to kind of wade into those waters, perhaps, uh, you know, using ETS. So ETS, you have to have a gen server that owns the ETS table. So you start to kind of ease your way in. I'd love to hear about your, what you've seen and experienced, you know, because it sounds like you got really far along in having a product and having a service without needing to dig into OTP kind of concepts. And then you've been able to layer them in slowly. Just kind of tell me about that journey. We did. We, we got very far avoiding anything OTP and anything Erlang. We hit up against it whenever... It was for, the, for our main website. We had a process that when the site launched, it would take... Because we, we have thousands of icons. And the site needs to know about each one of those icons. So we've got YAML files and JSON files that describe, that represent the data. So we, have a, we had a process, a gen server, that was reading in that data so that we could make icon data available to our application. What we ran into 
we started off pretty naive where we were just storing that in a map. And it was a little gen server. We were really proud. We had finally written our own gen server and gotten some of that stuff out there. And it was really neat. And we learned about the callbacks. But later on, we had some performance issues where the gen server was actually timing out. And we had everything hooked up to Sentry. So we knew when this stuff was happening. It was normally during a, a spike, a load spike for the site. We would get these things coming through. They weren't very, didn't have a bunch of them, but it was enough that it concerned us. We knew that there was a 500 error page being shown to somebody when this happened. So we investigated how to fix it. And along the way, we learned, okay, gen servers are pretty much, they're single threaded. Or in my mind, that's, that's how they work. They're a single thread. It's one Erlang process that represents that one gen server. Everything has to happen through message passing. So here we are. Oh, okay, here's the problem. We're passing a 40 megabyte chunk, a map from process to process, and it's having to be copied onto the stack of everything that it goes to. And that's why it's timing out. So we started investigating ways we could solve that. And that's where that led us into ETS because ETS is atomic and the concurrency for ETS is a lot different than a gen server. So you can, you can really put a lot of load on that. To give you an example, a lot of people don't know that when you say application.getEMV, all that's doing under the hood is it's accessing an ETS table. So these things are made to be really fast. So that was our first experience with OTP really. And like you said, we were able to put that off for a long, long time until we had a specific use case. Even then, we kind of did it wrong. Had to wait to see that we did it wrong because we had errors coming through before we dove a little bit deeper to find out how to do it more efficiently. And so did that completely alleviate that bottleneck? It just disappeared overnight? Disappeared overnight. We, we deployed it that day once we got it fixed, and we have never seen that issue again. That's awesome. Uh, that is as a great example of, you know, learning on the job, you know, as you experience it, you t it's okay, you don't get it right the first time. That's why it's important to have things like monitoring, right? To like you, you said, you mentioned you have Prometheus and you have Sentry.io, have some links to those. Um, but that's, that's why we need uh, visibility into our application so we can see where we have new bottlenecks as, you know, because the, the environment where application is running is changing. The, you know, like you mentioned how you have load spikes as things happen in open source and, pub, you know, PR announcements and things like that. I think it's a good point. A good takeaway message is you don't have to get it perfect the first time. It's just, it's a process and continue to develop it and grow it. Yeah, exactly. And if any of us are in it to get it perfect the right time, the first time, you know, maybe that's how you build rockets, but man, that's not how we build software that puts websites or put, puts icons on your website. <laughs> if you watch, if you watch some of the SpaceX, uh, launches and the, the different trials they've had, they've had a lot that didn't go perfectly. <laughs> that's, that, that <laughs> that's is a true. good point. You know, when it, when it blows up on the pad, that's probably not <laughs> what you intended to happen. Uh, well, Rob, thank you for coming on. Is there anything you wanted to mention, uh, before we start to close? Yeah, I think it'd be just kind of one last thing is, we talked about the Fun Awesome 5 Kickstarter that kind of launched our story, Fun Awesome. And I just want to tell everybody that we are working on Fun Awesome version 6 now. And if you go to our website, you can watch our new video. So 
Uh, Mark, you mentioned the Fun Awesome 5 video and the the fun that we had with that. We, we have a new video up with kind of the same crew and the same actors and everything. The same company did that production. And it's really fun to watch. Fun Awesome version 6 is just an extension of what we've already done, the, the things for 5 and the improvements that we made. But we're really doubling down on making it as easy to use and integrate as possible. So we've got some great features planned for it and lots and lots of new icons. Our icon designer, Jory, he has been cranking out icons at a unbelievable pace and we're really excited some of the new styles and things that he's making. So if anybody's interested in that, they can check it out at fawnawesome.com. And uh, just thanks a lot, guys, for having me on. All right. Well, thank you, Rob. If, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. On Twitter, my handle is R-O-B-M-A-D-O-L-E, Rob Madole. And uh, GitHub, I have the same handle. So that's pretty much the only online things that I check. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. When I first came to Elixir, I initially struggled with pattern matching. I didn't even know how to mentally parse the code I was looking at. As I got the hang of it, it started to feel like a superpower. I loved it. However, I often still wrote code that was very imperative. I knew I wasn't applying it well yet. I remember one day I wrote some code and felt like it wasn't elixiry enough. I looked at examples of good code, refactored it, but it still wasn't right. I repeated that a couple more times looking at good examples of Elixir code and refactoring it. Finally, I felt like I got it. That was such a great feeling. In fact, I was so pleased I saved that code as a trophy. If you haven't already experienced something like that, then that's why I created my pattern matching course. It walks you through how pattern matching works with different data types and helps you get that superpower feeling. Best of all, this course is free. I want everyone to be able to get pattern matching. It is a foundation to so much in Elixir. In the course, you download a project with failing tests. You practice TDD to solve the problems and make the tests pass. You take it at your own speed. You can practice refactoring and finding that solution that feels like a good example of Elixir code. Go to thinkingelixir.com and enroll in my free pattern matching course and experience it for yourself.